So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not uh, look only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this in mind among yourselves, uh, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks God. Good morning. Hope everyone's doing well. If I haven't met you yet, like Mark said, my name is Tyler. I'm one of the pastors at... Um, Stay down the hill, Brookline. Good to be back with you guys. Um, I want to start this morning off with a confession. Um, a few weeks ago, I got up uh, behind the pulpit in Brookline, and I said that our softball team was better than your softball team. And I want you to know Proverbs 29 says the fool speaks too soon. It's painful. We lost by one. It's okay. It's fine. Base is loaded, like two, one out. Come on, we need one run. Anyways, it's a good game. Uh, if you didn't know, we, we, our, our network of churches has two softball teams. Um, Brookline and Forest Hills are on one, and Somerville, you guys, and Brighton are on another, and they play each other once a year, and it's a really big deal. And based on the records, we were the better team, okay? But I got up there, and I was like, it's gonna be a great time because we're the better team, and then we lost. Anyways. That doesn't lead anywhere. I'm just, <laughs> like, come on. Anyways, today we're going to talk about community. Um, we're going to focus on a certain aspect of, of community, of, of Christian community. Um, community is important. Christian community is important in the Christian life, not just because uh, church leadership values it or because the kind of cultural moment says that having others around you is an important thing. It's important because it's a big theme in the scriptures. It's a big, big theme in the Word of God in the Bible. If you flip through the pages of your Bible, um, you won't see the people of God living in sort of kind of an abstract, um, non-defined, unclear way, but rather you see various people in various places living in particular ways together, living out their faith together. And so um, this value, it's not just like theory. It's not just some theological concept. Uh, it, it's supposed to look a certain way. Like the, the way that you do life together with the people around you, it's supposed to have a picture. It's supposed to look a certain way. It's supposed to function a certain way. We're supposed to do certain things, right? It's supposed to have certain kind of components to it, right? And kind of some concrete pillars uh, about what the Bible says about community. And so today we're just going to kind of hone in on, on one small aspect of that. We're going to talk about what it looks like to have a life that's centered on others, and what, what it should look like based on like kind of what our passage tells us. So um, as we dive in, I kind of want to start with a question, an experiment of sorts. 
Um, I, I'm just genuinely curious what everyone here does after church. And so uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to describe three kind of buckets, bucket one, two, three, um, and um, you're going to put yourself in a bucket. And I'm going to ask you, you're going to raise your hand if you're in bucket one, bucket two, bucket three. Basically, I'm putting you guys all in a box. So um, bucket one, don't raise your hands until after. Bucket one, Sunday after church is a day of lingering for you. And by the way, I, I don't mean any positive or negative connotations with these things. I'm just trying to kind of summarize three different things you might do after church. Uh, Sunday's a day of lingering. Maybe you stay longer after everyone else is gone, enjoying your, your coffee and your bagel a bit longer. You go to a restaurant with some folks from church. Maybe you go to a park. Maybe you go back to someone's house with just kind of like no agenda, right? And you're just hanging out. Uh, bucket two um, is that Sunday afternoons are a day of relaxation for you, a day of refreshment, a day of being in your pajamas. And so after church, you go home, you put your PJs on, you get another cup of coffee, you make your Sunday cocktail, whatever kind of floats your boat, and you just relax, you get yourself ready for the week, and you're just, you're just kind of refreshing yourself on your couch at home. Bucket three, uh, you have a lot going on. I don't mean this in like a bad way, but like you got errands to run, you got to go grocery shopping, you got to get the kids to soccer practice, you got to go to campus to study. You are just kind of immediately going to do some things on your task list. You got to get some things done because the, the, the week is just like full of work and just crazy to things. So Sunday, Saturdays are the things that you can do these things. So those are the three buckets. So raise your hand if you're in bucket one. That Sunday is a day of just kind of like lingering. A few? Yeah, yeah, you can cheer for that, I guess. Like, <laughs> bucket two. Bucket two, Sunday is a day of relaxation. Like, you just, you need to go get refreshed. Yeah. Bucket three, you got to get some stuff done. Yeah. Okay, so I think, I think I saw a couple people raise their hands for, like, every bucket. That's not allowed. Come on. Okay, uh, there was actually quite a bit of diversity across the room. I think most people were in bucket three, but there was a really good split. Almost one-third, one-third, one-third. And, of course, we can extend that into way more than three buckets, right? Like, we can do ten buckets of different things you do and take that and multiply it over and over and over for each different kind of preferential thing that you have going on in life. And so a good question, in light of that, would then be how in the world are we supposed to be in community together? Like, beyond just showing up on a Sunday... Right? How in the world are we supposed to do the Christian life together when we're so different? Like when the way that you structure your life, the way that you spend your time, is like a complete 180 from the person you're sitting beside. Right? The exact opposite. How can we be expected to do life together in a meaningful and intimate way? How can I center my life around you if we're just like totally opposite people? And there's an answer to that question. It's more obvious than you think. It's simpler than you think, yet it eludes us so frequently. How do we do the Christian life together in a meaningful and intimate way? The answer is by centering our lives on God. Because a life rightly centered on God is a life centered on others. A life rightly centered on God is a life centered on others. That's our main point, kind of big takeaway for today. A life rightly centered on God is a life centered on others. So now the statement comes with a lot of nuance, which probably means it's not a great main point. <laughs> but number one, I'm not calling other people God. Hope you kind of understood that from the get-go. Uh, number two, um, that doesn't mean the inverse is true. That doesn't mean that if your life is centered on others, that your life is then also centered on God. 
but rather when your life is rightly centered on God, because of what that looks like, it means it's also centered on other people. There's no separating the two, as much as we would like to. Like if you came up to me and you said, yeah, like I'm a a born-again Christian, I've dedicated my life to the Lord, my life is centered on God, I have a a God-centered life, a gospel-centered life, right? Uh, But you aren't plugged into community, you aren't serving and loving other people, I'm not saying you aren't saved. I'm not saying you don't have a genuine relationship with the Lord. But I am saying you're missing a key ingredient. You're missing something that kind of helps the whole thing work. You're missing not just an addition to it, but a main component of the faith. Because a life rightly centered on God is a life centered on others. And so as we explore that idea today, our roadmap... Um, we're basically going to go from like light theology to practice, or a really fancy way to say that is orthodoxy to orthopraxy. Basically just like look like what, what does it mean to have a life centered on God and others, and then what does it look like? So theology to practice. First, what does it mean to have a life centered on God? We won't spend too, too long on this one, but uh, first let me define what I mean when I say centered, because you might hear that and it's not necessarily one-to-one what I exactly mean. Uh, an example of this might be Um, take like the public garden downtown or Newberry Street or like government center kind of financial district. That might be like the the center, quote unquote, of Boston in terms of buzz of activity. Not like in a geographic sense, but that's just like, oh yeah, that's the center, that's the heart of the city, right? But there are a billion other things going on outside of those areas that aren't impacted at all by what's happening there. In the same sense, God can be the quote unquote center of our lives, but not reach everything, not impact everything. And so actually a more helpful way to think about this is to picture God as kind of the gravitational center of your life. Why? Because when something is the the gravitational center, everything else revolves around it. Right? Everything else is deeply impacted by it. Everything is directed and guided and defined by this gravitational center. And so that's a little bit clearer of an image of what we mean when we say God is the center of your life. It's not just that he's the most important thing. It's not just that God and the things of God are the way you spend most of your time. It's that he's the gravitational center that that guides and directs and defines everything and that everything exists because of him and for him. In other words, God's not meant to be in a box. You're not supposed to have some kind of religious corner of your life. Right? He shouldn't be acknowledged in only certain areas of your life. Right? What does the proverb say? It says, in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. In all your ways. You want to know what the Hebrew word all translates there? All. In all your ways acknowledge them, him. And so when God is the gravitational center of your life, everything revolves, orbits, is impacted by this gravitational center. And when you live a life with God as the gravitational center, it is inseparable from a life with others there too. Galatians 5 says this, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And Paul, who who wrote Galatians, he essentially is saying that like, we are no longer under some sort of oppressive weight, but rather in Christ Jesus, who has made us right with God, because of that we can serve each other. In other words, you were saved to serve. You were given life 
to serve others. And when you consider the life of Jesus, you see a perfect example of this. Right? A selfless life. A completely selfless man who knew his mission, and he stated it like this. These are Jesus' words. He says, the Son of Man, Jesus, did not come to be served, but to serve. The second half of our passage, which we're not going to dive too deep into, but paints an incredible picture of this, of a life completely centered on others. Verse 7, it says, Jesus emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. He gave himself up entirely. He emptied himself. He gave himself away entirely to serve other people. Verse 8, he was born in the likeness of men. He made himself like us. He humbled himself not in the sense that he needed to be humbled, but rather the Son, God the Son, who existed and exists in glory with God the Father in humility became like us so he could serve us. I don't think we understand how countercultural that is. We don't intuitively think that the CEO should be doing the dirty work. So why shows like Undercover Boss are just so fascinating, right? And yet, it's so interesting when we see the CEO doing things like that, we envy it in some way. When we see Jesus serving other people in humility, when we see Jesus do things like wash the disciples' feet, Ironically, right after the disciples have an argument over who's the greatest. I think it's easy for us to forget that not just that's our Lord and Savior, but that's God in the flesh. Not just some man. Jesus knew that his life was centered on the good of other people. His life was wholly oriented around other people. But here's the thing, when you read the Gospels and when you just kind of like look at the life of Christ... You see there's something behind that. It's not just service. Right? There's something to it, almost as if Christ has a source for his ability and his desire to do those things. Jesus knew, Jesus knew that he had to center himself on others, but he knew he could only do that if his life was also wholly oriented around God. That's why you see in kind of key pivotal moments, Jesus' escape and goes and prays to the Father. Jesus meditates on the scriptures. And if this is truly how Jesus lived his life, then other people ought to be the gravitational center of our lives too. Doesn't mean you give them like whatever they want. Doesn't mean you exhaust yourselves in serving others. It's not actually what's best for you or, or them. And so this is where we start to kind of transition a little bit into practice. So that was some like light, very light theological kind of ideas of what it means to have a life centered on God. You cannot separate God being the gravitational center of your life and other people uh, being the gravitational center of your life. So what does it look like? Others being the gravitational center of your life. What does it look like? Well, I think it's this. It's completely laying down your preferences for the good of other people. That's what I think the first half of our passage is communicating. Completely laying down your preferences for the good of other people. It doesn't mean at all times and in all ways. But what I mean by that is a disposition of being ready and willing to lay down your preferences for the good of your brothers and sisters. 
What I'm afraid of as I look around just like our city, our culture, our country, even our churches at time, is not many people are ready to do that or willing to do that or have counted the cost in doing that. The first half of our passage exhorts us to do this. Right? It says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Here's what that can mean. When you meet someone that has a hundred different buckets than you, buckets that are completely opposite, whether it's what they do after church, how they spend their free time, how they raise their family, what they care about, what sports team they root for. We look at those scenarios and we say, we tend to say what? Well, we just don't vibe. We just don't click. We just don't mesh. If I can be honest, like there's nothing that saddens me more than that. Right, the, we just don't click, so we're just not gonna really do life together. Especially if this is someone that's another Christian, your brother or your sister in Christ. Like, can I just call all of us out, myself included in this? Like, what a selfish mindset. I'm not saying that you need to be buddy-buddy, best friends forever with these people that you don't mesh with. But what a selfish mindset. And in these moments, we actually have a really functionally small view of God and the sacrifice that he made to bring us together with that person. Ephesians 2 talks about this. It says, In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. This part, key on this part. Who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. That's what brings us together. That's what compels us and motivates us to do life together with people that are different than us. To then say that you're not going to do that because you just don't mesh, that deteriorates the sacrifice of Christ. Like, you look at the early church, Acts 2, like, we all read that passage, and we're like, yes, like, this, this picture-perfect idea of community. Everyone's like, no one's in need. They're living life together. Like, it sounds, it sounds great. But do you want to know why they had massive success doing that, living out their core value, quote-unquote, of community? It's not because they were all on the same life stage. It's not because they like the same kind of beer or rooted for the same football team or were in the same socioeconomic class. No, the early church had massive success because they realized their ultimate common identity was Jesus Christ. And like, can you imagine Jesus like with someone that's genuinely trying to kind of uh, follow him and, and commit their lives to him being a little bit like, we aren't that similar, bro. Like, you do you, I'm gonna do me. You could follow from a distance. No. When someone comes to me and says that they don't vibe with someone or things haven't clicked, or let me get kind of everyone in the room right now, when someone comes up and says, I don't click very well with my community group, I'm so tempted to ask, and I'm preaching to myself here too, like have you tried serving them lately? And to be more descriptive, have you tried serving them in a healthy way, in the way that they would want to be served? and the way that they best receive that service or only the way that you want to serve them? 
I remember a scenario in the past with a CG I was a part of. Um, there was a member of the group who uh, was, the whole group except for her was just kind of in the same life stage, and so we did vibe, we did click, we did mesh. Um, this person was just in a different life stage, and she was into different things. And as she was kind of trying to be a part of the group, be a part of our little family, she invited us all to do something that like no one wanted to do. She invited, she invited this might be your thing, I'm not knocking on it. Uh, she invited us all to come over, read books silently in her apartment together. See, yeah, someone, yeah. But like for 99% of that group, they were like, oh, sorry, a little, you know, busy, I don't know. And I just remember that, that, that person, she just continually felt outcast. And yes, it's a two-way street, but the biggest lane was that we didn't lay down our preferences to welcome her in. When we should have done it. Another example, I remember a few years ago, um, my wife and I, we were really challenged in this area, and, and not that we do this perfectly now or do this perfectly back then, but um, we made the, the, the intentional decision, and this is like before we had our kid, like, like I love going to Trader Joe's, doing my grocery shopping after church, getting like a meal to go, going home, watching football, and open, opening up like an Oktoberfest or something, and just like, uh, just, you know. But we kind of made this decision, like we had this realization that when we always do that, it costs other people. And so we made the decision, like when the opportunity arises, we're gonna be ready to extend our day. And so this is like people that were in bucket two kind of extending into bucket one. Right, to go to lunch with friends, go to someone's house after, just kind of hang with no agenda. And we did this a lot. We started doing this many times, and even now with a kid, like we still try to do it, even though her nap time's like 12 p.m., it's the worst. Because it's a small way we can love other people who have different preferences than us. And again, we didn't do this perfectly, but you know what happens when you start doing that? Your preferences start to change. And as you get closer to others, if, if they're in the right mindset too, they're gonna begin to lay down their preferences for you. When I say preferences change, I don't mean like I didn't wanna not do those things. Like fall's coming, football's coming, like I'm ready. I don't mean that I still don't desire those things or I still don't do those things. But what I mean is that we counted others as greater than ourselves. I mean that the Spirit of God moves supernaturally in and through your hearts to grow care and compassion for other people that don't prefer the same things you do, and to quite frankly, to stop being so selfish with our time. Remember, verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. What I'm saying is that your default posture should be to lay down your preferences for others. The way you spend your time, the way you structure your life. Others have to be the gravitational center. Now, the, 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 the one thing I'm not getting into is like the nuance of all of that. Right, I'm not advocating for just you just completely burning yourself out or you completely abandoning the ways that God has gifted you or made you to be or made you to function. But there's no ignoring the fact that the scripture tells us over and over again that other people have to be the gravitational center of our lives. That's why things like community group are so important. 
right? It's not just like you should join a community group because it's what we do at church. No, it's twofold. One, just to encourage everyone a little bit, if, if, if you've been coming here and you consider yourself a Christian and you're not part of a CG, again, we already talked about this, you're missing a key ingredient. It's not a side accessory. Doing Christian life with other people is not a side accessory. It is not an accessory to the faith. Across every COA church, the main vehicle for doing life together is our community groups. Secondly, and we hear this some already, but when you think you don't need community group, or you think you're too busy for community group, what are you saying? You're saying that group is essentially about you and what you can or can't get out of it. Right? Like that's failing to acknowledge that the other people in the group would likely benefit from your presence. Like, what if some church group or some church event wasn't just about you and just for your enjoyment? What if it was for the good of other people too? So that you could be hospitable and welcoming to people that are new. So you can care and check in on the people that you worship beside each and every Sunday. So you can come alongside people that have different preferences than you and be a witness to the world that Christ is a uniting factor that is so strong and cannot be broken. What if church isn't just about you? What if group isn't just about you? I'm not trying to guilt everyone into attending group or a church event. Because there is a big difference, right? If, if, if your life is a million miles an hour and you genuinely need to take a break, you genuinely need to be refreshed and relax in the Lord and trust in the Lord, that's much different than not going to something versus you're not going because you just don't click. Or it's just kind of not your preference. I was kind of thinking through this and, and working through this, the idea of a middle ground kept coming to mind. Right, like you may be tempted to say that, that people with different preferences should meet in the middle. And there might be a space for that and certain things that, that that would make sense for, but I would argue when it comes to these kind of things, most of the time there's no, there's no middle ground. There's no meaningful middle ground because uh, think about what you're saying when you want the middle ground. You're saying, uh, what is the way I can serve you the least? The least amount of sacrifice required for each person. I want to find the way that costs us the least. And secondly, just true love demands that you defer to the other person. It's the whole idea we're talking about. Centering your, centering your life on others. Laying down your preferences for others. Usually, when we want the middle ground, it's because we want the cheapest form of sacrifice. It's not true with all things but it's true with some things. Let me give you a tangible example. Ashlyn, my wife and I, we're, we're on the opposite ends of the spectrum when it comes to spending money. Can you guess who's who? For like half my sermons, I start with like, I was downtown doing something fun, like spending money. And for us in this area, there isn't like a middle ground per se. And I'm not prescribing that particular thing to everyone right now, I'm just using this as an example. 
but what it actually looks like to serve the other person, to lay down our preferences for the good and love of the other, is a constant back and forth. What that means is sometimes even though I want to go buy lunch, and even though we have the money, and even though maybe I think our dining out budget should be a little bit higher, it means that out of love and care, I defer to my wife's preferences. And that day, I don't go get the large steak bomb with lettuce, tomato, mayo from Pizza Stop. And for her, that means even though maybe we spent more than we, sh- we should and in a healthy way with healthy boundaries and not having just sinful stewardship of our money, she says, it's okay. Go get the large steak bomb. Back and forth. So as we start to close, you might hear this and think like, well, it's, is it... It's like a stalemate. Right, everyone's just trying to lay down their preferences. You know, like, it's a little bit similar to that little, like, kind of the awkward friend circle that's just like, what should we do? And no one has a strong preference, and everyone wants to kind of defer to the other person. You're like, what do you want to do? What do you want to do, right? Now, there needs to be an intentional alternating cycle of sorts. It needs to be you serve others, and then you let others serve you. And so the penultimate answer to what does it look like to be in community, to do life together with people that are vastly different than you, people across this church, people in your community group, it is to totally and completely sacrifice your preferences and desires and the way you structure your life while having a life centered on God. It's not pursuit of the middle ground, per se. It's pursuit of serving one another. I didn't see Jesus pursuing the middle ground when it, come, when it came to his sacrifice. We see Jesus do this perfectly. We see Jesus have a life centered on others because it was centered on God. A life rightly centered on God is a life centered on others. Let's pray. God, we are thankful that you give us the perfect example in Christ of what it looks like to have a life centered on you and what it looks like to have a life centered on others. God, help us to do this in the way we live our own lives and our own preferences. Help us to lay down our desires and our preferences for others. In your name we pray and ask these things. Amen.